into our lives. Heavenly Father, I do pray that each one of us here in this space, that we would now just be, in a sense, just overwhelmed, overcome with the awareness that you are here in our midst because we've gathered in your name. And when you are in this space, when you are with your people, we really can't leave untouched, unmoved, unchanged by you. And so just collectively now on behalf of everyone, whether they wanted it or not, here we are submitting and committing ourselves again fully to you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, with that said, let's have the actual sermon. Here's mud in your eye. Have you ever heard that one? You know that one, here's mud in your eye? I thought about that in reading uh, the text that I'm about to get into. And I then, as soon as I remembered it, I just thought, what in tarnations is that all about? Here's mud in your eye. So I did the old Google Nader there. Um, it's been an expression that's been around for a long time. Uh, a lot of the thought around it is that maybe it came into common usage during World War I when so much of the battle was fought in the trenches and they were uh, in the mire and the muck and the mud quite literally and they would say here's, here's mud in your eye but then a little more research revealed that it's been in usage uh, from the 1800s and it has really been in usage as a toast so the idea was of course two people would toast they'd raise a glass they'd toast and they'd say here's mud in your eye and then the one thought with that was well if you drink too much after that toast your eyesight your thinking will become muddy clouded blurry and so maybe that's the meaning of here's mud in your eye here's something that's going to cloud your thought but then this other uh, stream of thinking says no actually this uh, just means we're coming into agreement we're coming to agreement on something. When you toast and you clink those glasses, you're agreeing to something together. And that points back to the passage we're about to read whenever this man gets mud in his eye, but then he can see clearly. In fact, he can see for the first time in his life. For the first time in his life, his eyes are actually open. He can actually see, and he can actually see the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King, whom he will at the close of our story here today know and call upon him as Lord and Savior and will worship him. And so there's this sense then that I'm inviting us all now to kind of raise our communion cups, so to speak, to clink them, to say here is to mud in our eyes in that sense of saying, may you recreate our sight. May you recreate our vision to see you more clearly and to see you for who you are. Are. We have been going through John between Christmas and in two weeks then the start of our Easter season, which actually starts with Ash Wednesday, March 2nd. Mark your calendar, join us for that. It's always a wonderful time of worship. Uh, but we are into our sixth sign, our sixth miracle. Next week we'll be hitting upon Lazarus. Oh, love preaching that story. But remember, let's refresh our memory so we're all on the same page. These aren't just miracles. These are what John wants us to understand as signs. And what do signs do? They give us information, and that information should always be translated into action on our part. A stop sign tells you there's an intersection there. We take in that information, and we respond with an action. I should stop, make sure it's clear before I proceed. Every time we hear one of these stories, one of these miracles, we stop, we take in the information, and we say, how do we proceed now 
in discipleship? How do we proceed with our faith, knowing now what has been revealed about Jesus Christ? With that said, we'll jump into the text. I always got to refresh my, uh, my connection here. It always seems to go on pause. But we're going to dive into chapter 9. We're just going to read the first 11 verses. I would encourage you, of course, to come back to this this week. Maybe talk about it with us in our men's group or another Bible study group. Because actually the after effects of this miracle run you through the entire uh, chapter 9. And there's a lot that I will not have the opportunity to get into today just because of the enormity of the text. Here's the first 11 verses. As he, that's Jesus, went along, he saw a man born, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it only looks like the man. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. <laughs> this is the word of our Lord. We have been following not just the miracles in John's gospel, but these miracles have also formed for us a timeline and also a plot line. Throughout John's gospel, he always points out when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem at one of the times of the festivals. And we have been seeing that this timeline walks us through the ministry of Jesus. But remember that this is also the plot line for Jesus. That every time Jesus is coming to the city, that every time he is celebrating the feast of Passover or the feast of tabernacles in this case, John is showing us that Jesus is fulfilling all that was prepared and predicted for us in the old system, in the old law, in the Old Testament. We've seen that Jesus is the true Sabbath rest and restoration. We've seen that Jesus, or I should say, we will see that Jesus will be the Passover lamb who will win for us our salvation. And here we are being taught, we are being reminded that at the Feast of Tabernacles, when the people were traveling along with God and God was tabernacling, dwelling with them, we've already learned from the Christmas story, if we just turn our memories back there a little bit, that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the promise and really in many ways the story of the Bible in three words, God with us. God has desired to be with us and be restored into right relationship with us. And Jesus is fulfilling that. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God dwelling with us. And not only that, as soon as we turn the page to chapter nine and we enter into Jesus celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, going back up towards Jerusalem, it says that Jesus saw 
a man born blind from birth. How many of these miracles have started with Jesus seeing us? Almost everyone, actually, there's the answer. Almost everyone begins with Jesus seeing us. He saw the man on his mat at the pool of Bethesda. He saw the crowd that followed him into the wilderness and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the disciples fighting against the storm in the middle of the night. Oh, my people, just keep reminding yourself when you are in the storm, when you are without, when you are down on the mat in any metaphorical way, Jesus still sees you. You might not get the answer right away. It may be a difficult season. The storm may last through the night, but joy will come in the proverbial morning. Jesus sees you. Jesus is coming to you. Jesus is with you. Jesus will walk with you through these difficulties. Oh, take heart, take joy, take hope, and always knowing that Jesus is always seeing his children. Jesus sees what is happening here, and he sees a man born blind from birth. And now let's just take note that being blind from birth is different from becoming blind. As tragic, as awful, as difficult as it would be to lose one's sight, to never be born with sight is, physiologically speaking, an entirely different experience. Your neurons, your synapses, those things just literally never develop. So this is a man who has been in darkness from the point of his consciousness. He has no memory bank from which to draw and make connection with God's creation or other people. He has no memory bank to, to, to tell him, what does a sunrise look like? What does a sunset look like? What do the mountains look like? What does the ocean look like? What does a green field look like? What is green? What is red? What is blue? I don't know. He has no, and, and when you just put yourself for a moment in that position, how far that would set you back, so to speak how difficult it becomes to connect with other people, to communicate with other people, to draw references from other people. This is a man who's behind many, many layers then of isolation, of misery, of suffering, of despair, of hurt, of struggle in his life. This is the one whom Jesus sees. And what do the disciples say as soon as they see this man who has spent his life in so much pain and suffering? They say, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would endure such this lowly estate in life. Now, before we act horrified and offended and ashamed at the disciples asking the question, they're asking the question that a lot of us ask anytime we see pain and suffering in the world. We tend to have a very simplistic, a kind of a gut, a kind of a natural, a kind of in the flesh response to whenever we see suffering or pain or hardship in the world. We think because we long for justice, we want fairness, and we look at the situation like this, and we say that isn't fair, well then, we want to blame somebody or something for the lack of fairness, the lack of justice. And in essence, it becomes this kind of Christian karma that we want to impose on the world. Let's unpack that a little bit, this idea of is there such thing as Christian karma? Now, stick with me. Don't misrepresent me on this because I'm going to walk us through a little bit of theology right here to say yes and no, there is a sense of Christian 
karma. Karma at the general, the pop cultural level, just kind of puts out this idea of we get what we give. What we put out is gonna come back to us. And on that level, there's that sense where we can say, yes, actually, we do kind of reap what we sow. But let's go a little bit deeper than that. What the disciples are not off base with is the fact that sin, who sinned, this man or his parents? Sin is the source of all suffering. All of us, in a sense, are burdened by the weight of sin in our lives and in the world. Sin is the true source of all pain and suffering and separation from God. And so we can always drive it back to that source. Praise be to God that we know the end of the story. We wanna suspend that for a little bit right now, of course, but we know that God is doing something about the sin in the world and in our lives that brings pain, that brings suffering, that separates us from God. So they're not off base to say at some level, sin has to be behind this suffering that this man has endured. Where they go off base though, is that they say who sinned this man or his parents. That's where they're wanting to get into the kind of the, the karma-esque aspect of this. You know, in a fair world, in a just world, wouldn't we be able to point this directly to something that somebody has done. And that's where we see this idea in the scripture, just to be fair and honest about what scripture reveals, is we do read a lot about reaping and sowing. Reaping and sowing is kind of this creational norm and this thing that we experience in life. If we put out kindness, we often get kindness back towards us. If we put out generosity, people can be giving and generous towards us. If we put out hate, ill will, malice, anger, often those things are returned to us. So we see the dynamic of reaping and sowing in our lives. But again, if we push it now another layer deeper, another layer further, what we're gonna realize is, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes we can be the most kind, loving, caring, compassionate person, and we get hate in response. We get mistreated in response. Sometimes we are the ones putting out hate or mistreatment or we act greedy and we get no comeuppance, right? We've had it happen both ways. We've put out the good and gotten the bad. We put out the bad and we haven't always paid the consequence. What this is going to be pointing out for us at a much deeper level is that if karma is very much about getting what you deserve, and if the deeper level of the, uh, the, the, the um, you know, kind of the philosophical belief of karma is ultimately we will get what we earn. We earn our place in the afterlife. Praise be to God that this is where we draw the line and say, this is where we reject that line of thought and that belief system. Because praise be to God that we do not get what we earn. Instead, we get grace through Jesus Christ. If karma is about earning your afterlife, grace is about getting what Christ earns for us at the end of our lives. Amen, friends? Are you still with me? Are you following here? Because grace tips the scales of fairness and justice. Because if I'm honest with my life and if I would look at my life through this lens of karma, this lens of you get what you give, I have gotten so much more than I've ever been given. It doesn't take long for me to just pause and meditate, 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 meditate upon my life and to say, I was born in a hospital, not in a hovel. I live in a house, not a hole in the wall. 
I was given an education instead of being forced into work and labor. I have been given healthcare instead of trying to make it through on my own. I have been given the blessings of so many graces upon graces upon graces in this world. Thank God, truly, literally, not flippantly, thank God for his grace that has tipped the scale in my favor on virtually every single account. And what this miracle is going to be pointing us to is that very fact that grace will tip the scales of God's justice in our favor at Christ's expense. Grace will tip the scales of fairness and justice in our lives and in the worlds at Christ's expense. It was at Christ's crucifixion. It was at his bearing the burden of the cross. It was at his taking sin to the grave. It is in his resurrection that grace begins to tip the scale in our favor. So thank God that it's not so simple to say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be in such a, in a state of suffering. We call upon grace. And that is what Jesus is about to turn our attention towards here. Turning the scales, tipping the scales toward the grace of Jesus Christ. And so this reminds me of a conversation I once had early on in ministry. In fact, when I was just doing campus ministry right out of college, I encountered a student who, truth be told, this student experienced a great deal of suffering and had a handicap that I've never had to endure. And this student began to walk along with us in our campus ministry, began to attend some of our fellowship events and some of our Bible studies, even went on some service trips with us. And at one point he did put the question to me, George, do you think that I have endured this disability, this handicap, this struggle, maybe because of unconfessed sin in my life? I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I'm sure I struggled through some answer in my youth and my naivete to try, try and bring him comfort, to try to turn him towards God's grace, try to have him focus on all the good things that he has in his life. He had his health still. He had the opportunity for an education. He had this fellowship of Christians around him. He had so many good things in his life. I don't know what I said, but here's what I hope I would have said with all pastoral compassion. I don't know, I don't know. And that's a hard answer to give to somebody in suffering. But let me walk you through that. The miracles have shown us and the law of reaping and sowing have shown us that sometimes there are in fact consequences to sin. And that miracle of the man who is on the mat, it ends actually with one of the more challenging statements of Jesus he told him, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. There does seem to be a dynamic sometimes at work in God's ways that sometimes consequences of sin can bring punitive suffering. I don't like to preach this. <laughs> I don't like to preach you the full counsel of the word of God always but it does fall on me to try and pastor you as deeply as I possibly can and to tell you that when we read the story of the Exodus, which some have been doing in our Bible study, Miriam, who had an otherwise nearly spotless track record, had a season of disobedience in her life. 
and she was afflicted with leprosy for a season. She confessed her sin and she was restored to health. Moses himself lost his temper, lashed out in anger, disobeyed the instructions that God gave him to obey and it then fell on him that he would never be allowed to enter into the promised land because of that sin. So it does occur to me that sometimes in God's economy, sometimes there is punitive damage for unconfessed sin. All I am left with then to say to you as if you are in some kind of suffering, if you are in an emotional distress, if you are in a spiritual distress, if that has even led to perhaps a physical distress, the invitation always stands though to go to God, to confess that sin, to ask for his grace to be poured out upon you. Sometimes we do see the effects of sin reaping difficult consequences in our lives and it would be pastoral malpractice for me to not always and compel you to go back to those first words of Jesus's public ministry. Repent, turn away from your sin, turn back to God. Turn away from those things that separate you from God that do no good for you or for your neighbor. Turn away from those things. Turn to God, confess your sin, and experience the good news. Experience the relationship, the grace, the life that I am offering to you. Because sometimes we do see the consequences of reaping and sowing from the sin in our lives. Sometimes it can seem like punitive damage in the counsel of God and in his work. Sometimes it can seem like corrective measures to try and get us back on course. God's rod in that sense, prompting us, pushing us, prodding us along to get back on the path that leads to his glory and for the flourishing of all of God's people. So confess that sin. Whew, all right, that's the tough part of the sermon, except then that in this case, Jesus is going to tell us mercifully, graciously, in this case, we're not just experiencing this kind of cosmic karma. It wasn't his parents' sin. It wasn't even his sin. Sometimes in a sinful, in a fallen, in a broken world, things are not as they are supposed to be. And when things are not as they are supposed to be, when a person is stuck in the dark and is blind, when a person is uh, on a mat and not able uh, to move, when a person is in bondage to some kind of sin, uh, these are opportunities for God to display his glory and for his work of restoration to be manifest and made known. And that is what Jesus is then pointing the disciples towards in this case. It was neither his parents, it was neither this man. In fact, this moment is to allow for God's glory, for the work of God to be displayed. And every work of God displayed in these miracles is a work of restoration. But I want us to think about it now in terms of recreation, new creation. Remember that the heart of every miracle, while they are moments, instances, when the laws of nature are in some ways transcended, superseded, they are at their heart actually simply glimpses of us of the way things are supposed to be. People aren't supposed to be in the dark. And so giving them sight 
is a restoration of the way things are supposed to be. People aren't supposed to be without mobility. And so being restored is restoring the way things are supposed to be. When somebody is in bondage or captivity and set free, that is a restoration of the way things are supposed to be. So every one of these miracles is a sign telling us this is in fact just the way things are supposed to be. You're supposed to be healed. You're supposed to be whole. You're supposed to be freed from the power and the grip of sin over your lives. And Jesus is saying here, I'm gonna take a moment to show you what life is supposed to be like for this man. And so it says that he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, he puts it on the man's eyes and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam and that he will have his sight. And again, this is, this is one of the tougher miracles to work through actually. And there's a part of me that says, what is that all about? I just want this to be like uh, blind Bartimaeus. You know, he shouts, Jesus hears him. He says, you can see and he can see. But in this case, we have tremendous detail of how this miracle has worked itself out. So I think we should land on this for just a few moments to say, why has Jesus worked this miracle in such a peculiar fashion? If we just do a quick recap of all the miracles, and again, next week we're gonna get into Lazarus, and John highlights this as kind of the ultimate final sign of restoration, of victory, of life over death. But these miracles, Jesus has done them in a myriad of different ways. There's been miracles where Jesus has done something from nothing. And there's been miracles where Jesus has done something from a little thing. One boy's lunch. There's been instances where Jesus has responded to somebody's cry for help. You know, Jesus, do something. They run out of wine. If you remember the very first one. And there's been instances where Jesus has inserted himself. He's asked people what they want. They haven't even responded and he's gonna heal them anyway. All of these miracles highlight different ways that Jesus has been working. And so why now in this case, all of a sudden does Jesus do this peculiar thing where he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, he puts it on the guy's eyes and he tells him to go and to wash. This is very, very much, we believe, about recreation and washing and restoration. This is very much about Jesus showing that he is the creating and now the recreating, the restoring one that comes through the washing in his name, which is baptism. But let's unpack that a little bit more. In John 8, before Jesus does this miracle, he has declared in no uncertain terms, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world shining into darkness. And as soon as we read that, that took me back to our celebration of Christmas just a few weeks ago. And in our celebration of Christmas here at Connections, if you were with us, we focused on the gospel passage from John. And if we turn back to that, we remember there we first hear the promise that the, the uh, word became flesh and dwelt among us. But John also gave us that insight that the light was the life of men and the true light was coming into the world. And that light was Jesus Christ. And that pointed us all the way back to Genesis chapter one. Whenever we remember that the very first words ever uttered, the first words ever spoken in all of creation were, let there be light. 
This is very much about Jesus being the creating one. Jesus very much becoming the light of the world, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus, the light of the world, now restoring to those still trapped in darkness, having the light break forth and opening their eyes and opening their life to the restoring, the recreating power of Jesus Christ. Why spear, why mud and spit? This points us back to that creation story where we remember that God made people out of the dust of the earth and then breathed life in to Adam, breathed life into mankind. Jesus is reenacting the creation story in this as he uses his mouth, as he uses his spittle. And we, of course, know that in breathing and exhaling, there is, you know, moisture. There's, you know, we can get into the, into the gory details of it, but this is very much about the breath of God, the very substance of God being mixed in with the dust, with the dirt of the ground to do a work of creation and formation. This is very much then about Jesus saying, taking that, and he's literally going to be recreating this man's eyes, because in essence, this man has never had eyes. He's never had those neurons. He's never had those synapses. He have never had those images. He's never had that, uh, that image pool, that bank of knowledge ever to work from in his life. And Jesus is gonna be doing recreating work in his life. And so he makes the mud, he puts it on his eyes, and then the man goes and he washes. And this points to us very much the fact that in Jesus, in his baptism, we all become restored and step into the life that is created for us. So three things that occur to me from this story, and I don't wanna lose my place and miss it because this is, this is a layered miracle here. First, let us never stray too far from the fact, of course, that Jesus is here revealing finally, finally and fully before our celebration of Easter, he is proving that he is in fact the very light of the world. And I just wanna remind you of what we talked about at Christmas because I think these are lessons for us never to stray too far from in our lives. First thing that the light does, the light reveals our lowly estate. The light reveals our estate. When our eyes are open and we see our lives truly, when we see ourselves standing before a holy and perfect God, we see our lowly estate. We see our need for a, a savior we see our need for restoration and recreation. We see our need for God's work in our lives. So that is what the light reveals. The light also reveals that it is also bringing the possibility of a new dawn, a new life, a new way of living. And so we gather around the light and hope. And the last thing we talked about at that Christmas, and uh, I, don't, I can't re-preach the whole thing though, but I love that image of like moths to the fire, how people congregate and come together around the light. The light draws people out of darkness to come and fellowship together. Jesus is simply showing he is in fact, as promised in the very beginning, as promised in that first chapter of John is being fulfilled now, Jesus is the light of life, the light of the world. The second thing that we see in this is Jesus is, of course, once again, challenging the Sabbath. When you read through the rest of the story on your own this week or in a Bible study, we'll see that Jesus is again going to get himself into a good bit of trouble for simply breaking man-made Sabbath laws. There's a lot we can say about that. There are some things we have said about that, but let us just remember that the Sabbath, Jesus says, 
is made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for us, God's people. And in the old practice of the Sabbath, remember, the Sabbath came at the end of the week. It came at the end of creation. It came at the end of hard work, and there was need for rest. But Christians flipped the script with the resurrection and says, actually, our worship begins with living into the rest, the restoration, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus here is again flipping the script, showing he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is our true rest. He is our true worship. But let's just zero in for a moment on that recreating work of Christ in our lives. N.T. Wright in his commentary on John is the one that highlighted for this for me and pulled this out for me. He highlights that with every act of recreation and renewal comes some confusion and even controversy. With acts of recreation and renewal comes controversy and confusion. This man gets his eyes recreated. He gets this new lease, this new life, this new way to move forward. And instead of people celebrating about it and rejoicing, it creates confusion and controversy. Who is this man? Was it the man? I don't know if it was the man. Maybe it just looks like the man. Is that the man? I don't know. It can't be the man. Then he gets his, you know, the Pharisees get pulled in. Who was the man who made you full? Are you healed? Are you really that guy? His parents are even going to get pulled in. And they're going to you know, diffuse the kind of the question. And, and there's all of this confusion around this work of recreation that has happened in his eyes, in his life. And not only that, it's led to controversy. And that is the experience that so many of us have had in Jesus Christ. And that is the experience that so many have had throughout the Gospel of John. A Pharisee named Nicodemus goes to Jesus to see if he's really the one, and it stirs up all kinds of controversy and confusion. Don't you know you have to be born again? How do I be born again? Do I go into my mother's womb? No, that's gross. That's weird. It's a metaphor. It's spiritual. You have to be spiritually born again. And he goes and he hides, and he doesn't come out with the truth until the end of Jesus's ministry. He meets a woman in Samaria and he begins to do ministry in her life. And he reveals some things about her life and her brokenness. And she gets confused. I know the Messiah is going to come, but when he comes, it's going to, and Jesus says, I'm the one. And then finally she comes to an understanding and embrace. And then the good news is shared. And it says that many of the people in Samaria believed, but some we know didn't. And we know that throughout then this ministry, this work of Jesus Christ, that all of these acts of recreation, this renewal, create controversy and confusion in people's lives. You know, Peter, I'm sorry, Simon, Simon, you're going to make you the rock. You're going to become a fisher of men. How's that going to happen? Am I going to get it perfect? No, you're going to live a life far from perfection. But the confusion and the controversy works its way out throughout Peter's life until on Pentecost morning we know that he finally steps into the calling that Jesus has in his life and fulfills what Jesus promised would be done through him. On and on again, we keep experiencing how these acts of recreation and renewal can create controversy and confusion in lives. And you meet people today that come to Jesus Christ and they can go from you know, a very depressed or distraught or forlorn person, and all of a sudden they have this peace and this joy of the world, and people say, how can it happen? And they say, through Jesus Christ. And people say, well, how can that be? And people that can go from very selfish or greedy lives can become generous and giving and loving in their lives, and people say, how can it be? And they say, through Jesus Christ. And people say, well, how can that be? 
And people can go from you know, being actually you know, evil, being awful, being liars, being cheats, being thieves, being horrible people, and all of a sudden they turn their life around. And there are, you know, there are consequences for a lot of those behaviors and actions, but people say, how could you go from being you know, such, a, such a horrible person to being so transformed? And they'll say, it's because of Jesus Christ and his work in my life. And the world still says, how can that be? And yet for those of us that have experienced the recreating, the transforming work of God in our lives, we know that it only happens again, trying to come full circle now by his grace coming into our lives. That we didn't receive what was just for what we had done. We didn't receive what would have been fair for the things that we've committed. We didn't even just receive mercy and you know, kind of get the slate wiped clean. No, we got grace. We got the justification, we got righteousness, we got right with God because of what Christ has done in our lives and the recreating, the renewing, the rebirthing work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that is what this man has experienced. It's created controversy, it's created confusion. But at the end of his life, he said, I can do no other than this. Now worship you as God. And so with that, let me invite Wes to come up and he's gonna get ready to take us out for some worship. But let's just take a moment, if we would, to walk through this man's life so that we can end up at the same place that he ends up in. This man that we are introduced to at the beginning of the story, we read that he was born blind from birth. He never has the opportunity to experience the sunrise, the sunset, and everything in between to create that memory bank, those images from which to live his life. He's lived his life in utter and complete darkness, no light breaking forth in his life. This is all he's ever known until one day he hears a conversation. He's heard conversations happening outside of him, happening around him his whole life. Look at this beggar. I wonder what happened. Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? This guilt upon shame, upon the suffering that he's already endured. But in this case, this conversation is happening. And all of a sudden, this one named Jesus says, this has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And before he knows it, this man is spitting on the ground and making mud and then this mud is being wiped onto his eyes. But for some reason, instead of being repulsed by this, he seems compelled by this when he hears the instructions, go now and wash in the pool of Siloam. And for some reason, for some reason, he decides to do exactly as this one Jesus asked him to do. Now picture that scene in Jerusalem, a festival is happening. The streets of the city are swelling with pilgrims coming in to celebrate this feast of tabernacles. He's been forced then to travel this great distance. And if you look at the geography, you can see he's gonna walk past many, many pools and possibilities for washing. But he's been given the instructions to go all the way down, down from that high point, down to the pool of Siloam, one of the lowest points then there in the city of Jerusalem. And he works his way down through that crowd. And there he washes. And as he washes, the work of recreation, of new creation, is being done through his life. He 
can imagine the joy, the excitement, uh, this transformational experience. He can probably hardly make sense of it. Everything is new now. Imagine for that moment, never experiencing light and now experiencing light that transforms to the images, that transforms to this God's creation unfolding before him for the first time ever in his life. And yet instead of everybody coming around him to celebrate and to rejoice and give thanks and glory to God, the confusion and the controversy actually almost seems to overwhelm the very miracle and the work of God that is unfolded in their midst. And yet he has a choice to make. And that choice comes to a head for him when a man stands before him and that man reveals that he is Jesus. And Jesus then reveals to this man that he is in fact the one who's come from God. And he worships him. And it's perhaps at that moment, I don't know exactly how it unfolded, but it occurred to me because this is Ruth Folkert's favorite psalm, one of her favorite passages of scripture. That's when it actually occurred to me that that is one of the psalms of ascent. One of the psalms that people would sing as they went up through the city to celebrate and to worship. And perhaps it was at that moment that this guy heard those words of Psalm 21 and he heard them in a way that he had never heard before whenever the people sang together, I lift my eyes up, up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And that's when he realized Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the light of the world, the one who restored his vision was also the one restoring his very life and new creation and salvation. So let's pray and then let's too join with that man and worship Jesus as the light of the world.